Futurecast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 128 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at C.S. Lewis Publicist and Company, and his name is Athol Duncan. Athol is chair of Black Isle Group, which is a leadership performance development specialist group and an international executive coach. He is certified by NSAID, and he studied leadership at Harvard and Cranfield. He is a former journalist and television producer who worked for BBC News for more than 20 years. In this discussion, we're going to talk about his new book, Leaders in Lockdown, Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. Now, this is a very interesting book because what Ethel did was he set out to interview world business leaders on how they've adjusted their leadership style and discipline and things like that through the COVID-19 pandemic. So you're going to get some inside look at what some of the top leaders have done and find some things that you can apply to your business. So with that, let me go ahead, get out of the way, let the stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Athol Duncan. Athol, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, uh, me as well. Um, and before we get into that, I've got some very astute listeners, and they probably heard the name and heard the accent right off the bat. Uh, so let folks know where you're joining us from today. Well, I, I'm joining you from Scotland, from near the most famous sets of golf links in Scotland. So any of your listeners who are golfers, I'll know where I am, and uh, I work mainly uh, in the UK, in the in the states, and internationally. Uh, travel to the US um, quite a lot, and uh, a lot of the people who featured in in my book um, were based uh, in the US. So the themes and uh, the hopefully the learnings uh, from this book are as relevant no matter which side of the pond you're on and which golf course you're near. <laughs> no, I love that. And, and it's true. So, uh, listeners, you heard me mention it in the pre-roll bio, uh, but Ethel wrote a great book called Leaders in Lockdown, Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. And I got to tell you, given the what I've read in the book, uh, what I've heard doing my uh, pre-show workup, I'm very excited to hear your answer to that that first question that I ask all of my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well, it means two words to me, I would say. It means privilege and it means duty. Um, And I think it's a privilege to be in leadership. Uh, People fight to try and get there. And when we get to these positions of command and leadership, it should be a privilege to have the pressure upon us that goes with the position. And my, hasn't there been pressure on people over the past 16, 17, 18 months. And that's where my second word comes in, duty, because there's been a duty on leadership in a way that there may not have been for many decades, uh, a duty to look after our people um, and to look after society and to look after the businesses um, that we serve. And as one of my leaders in lockdown said, uh, Leadership is not about what you do in the good times. It's about how you perform and behave in the bad times. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, that that's a 100% true statement there is, is the part about the bad times because, you know, I think a lot of organizations uh, before March of 2020 pretty much thought that they had everything locked down. They had their three to five year plan just completely planned out. Everything was going to be uh, coming up daisies. And then COVID hit, right? 
Well, yeah, and when you when you get things going well, that's normally the moment when the bad stuff happens. I think in business and in life, isn't it? When you think you're you're cruising along nicely, that's the time that you should be preparing for a crisis. But yeah, I, you know, it's been a a period of time that has been like no other in our generation of uh, business leadership. Um, and I think going back to my word of duty, it's our duty now to learn to learn uh, from what we've all been through. Um, how has it changed us as leaders, Errol? And I assume that it has changed as leaders. And how do we need to lead out of lockdown now? Because the challenges that are immediately ahead of us um, are different, but every more as challenging as the ones that we've faced, I would say, in the last 16, 17 months. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And, and one of the things I love there, and this is a point I've heard you make, uh, a few times before, you know, doing my my pre-show workup and listening to some of the the speeches and stuff that you have out there on YouTube. And by the way, folks, there's some great uh, material out there on YouTube that I'll link in the show notes here of of Athol speaking uh, uh, at different conferences and stuff. But you you make this comparison between COVID and what people are saying, and like September 11th and what people said then, right? Well, I think the, 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 the big question, really, when you compare back to September 11 and the global financial crisis and indeed the, you know, the great wars of the last century is how much is going to change? Um, and after or so during and after September 11, you know, people did float the idea that uh, we would be uncomfortable about working in skyscraper offices and that, um, you know, people would travel less on airplanes in case they, they were hijacked. But of course, we very quickly um, forgot about that, really. We didn't forget about the victims, but um, we forgot about um, the behaviours that were supposed to change uh, within us, and we went back to what we were used to. And I, and I think, Errol, that the challenge to leaders now is not to go back, not to twitch back to where we were, but to realise that society is at a crossroads and business is at a crossroads and to create a better world of work and a better society coming out of this and to avoid the gravity of pulling us back to where we were before. Yeah, and I think that is a very good point to make. And you know, I think the one thing that we're seeing now, at least here in the U.S., and I'm sure you've probably seen these uh, headlines uh, on your side of the pond as well, we're seeing all these folks where when leaders are trying to, and I like the way you put that kind of snap back to, to pre-COVID operations, we're seeing people do something we haven't really seen in this uh, mass set of numbers. People are just saying, fine, then I quit. I'm going to look for something else. And that should be a big trigger, shouldn't it? It should be a big trigger, you know, and this is being named the great resignation that we're facing and some surveys saying that up to 40% of people are considering whether they want to continue in the same role, whether they want to change company or whether they want to change career entirely. And it's been a moment of truth for many people. It's been a moment where they question what is the meaning of life and what is the meaning of work, where they question what the choices are that they've taken in the past and the choices they now confront in the future. And where a lot of people are thinking, well, what's my legacy um, going to be like? Because we've all stared um, mortality uh, in the face in this terrible pandemic. I mean, if you if you look at the the numbers, they're you know utterly um, incredible to think that four million people have died now. Four million people have died because of that. And doesn't that make us all think that? We could have been one of those people or our families or our loved ones or friends could have been one of those people. And in many cases, um, they were. So it's a, it's a moment where we do stop and pause and think, is corporate life really where we want to be? And that's the challenge for, for leaders and businesses in what we change. Um, do we make it enticing? Do we make it uh, interesting for people? to continue in corporate life, um, or do we switch them off by going back to what it was like before? Yeah, no, I, th those are great questions to ask. And I know a lot of organizations are, are really struggling with that right now. And uh, so let, let's talk about the book here for just a quick second, because I, I love, I love, 
and I've mentioned this a few times here on, on the podcast, I'm a big fan of book designs and how books are laid out. And first of all, I love the design of this book. Uh, folks, if you haven't seen Leaders in Lockdown, uh, it, it's going to like kind of scream out at you when you see it. It's got this kind of real caution tape, yellow uh, kind of look to it. Um, and it's it's laid out very well. You you uh, you interviewed what was it? it was twenty eight authors. We spoke to twenty eight global business leaders, and uh, they were from all around the world. So um, you know they included leaders from Asia, the chief executive of Peninsula Hotels. And they included leaders in in healthcare in the U.S. The chief executive of the New York Times, the the chief executive of Whoop, which is a wearable health app, um, headquartered out of Boston. We spoke to people in Silicon Valley, leaders on Broadway, and we focused quite a lot on uh, New York and how New York um, and the leaders there were coping with the pandemic. And with uh, the chair of America's oldest auction house and how they adapted to digital during the crisis. And really there was two questions we asked them initially. How were you coping with the crisis and how do you think the world will change because of what we've all been through? And from that, we created seven themes. And we think these are the, the seven themes to ponder in terms of um, how you might confront a change of strategy in your business and, and kind of wider, how we maybe should be considering how society should change as a result of what we've been through. Yeah, no, I I like that. And I'm glad you mentioned the themes because that's one of the things I like. I like the way this book is really organized. Uh, those themes are the new age of purpose, the new world of work, tackling inequality, global cooperation, resilience, resetting the supply chain, and maximizing potential. And so if you don't mind, what I'd like to do, because uh, I really want listeners uh, to, to, get a, to get a feel for the book and go out and buy a copy, because I think it's, it's very valuable that folks see this. So let's work through some of those themes and give them a little bit of uh, a little bit of a primer on those. How's that sound? Great, absolutely great. Yeah, fire away. Where do you want? Which one do you want to start with? Uh, well, I mean, let's start at the beginning because I think this is a huge theme right now and kind of one we've already touched on a little bit. The new age of purpose. I think that's really the one thing that COVID has done, not just for organizations but for the the workers. Right? Is is they've given people an opportunity. Uh, to to really think about a lot of things, you know, we we got a chance to get out of the hustle and bustle, if you will, and we were kind of forced to stop, slow down, and think. And so, a lot of people have made a lot of traction behind the word purpose over the past sixteen to eighteen months. So, what are what is the new age of purpose right now? Well, just to paint a picture for your listeners who may be thinking that I'm some kind of 30-something uh, handsome young man, I've actually been around a little bit longer than that. And uh, in all the time that I've worked in business, the last 30-plus um, years, we've talked about purpose, but it's really been something to emblazon on your website. And there's very few companies that have actually um, captured it through action rather than just words. And the feeling of um, the leaders in lockdown was that this was the moment where purpose really came alive. And one of the leaders that we worked with was Lena Nair, who's the chief HR officer of Unilever. And she felt that it had completely galvanized that company through the crisis. And the feeling now with the leaders in lockdown is that purpose is just so important for engaging your employees, for your clients and your customers who may now vote with their wallet depending on whether they like your purpose or not. And also for investors and the, the huge rise that there's been in focus on ESG. So the message going forward is if you don't take purpose seriously now, it's going to hit you in the wallet. Uh, it's going to uh, put off your employees and it's going to put off your clients and your investors. So the, the time has come for our purpose to be heart and center of what we do. Well, and I'm glad you chose Lena Nair because I like um, it was it was one of the videos I saw. You you played a clip, I think, of her uh, talking about purpose and Unilever, and she said something to the effect of, 
you know, what a great time to have a purpose of bringing uh, health and sanitation to the world than during COVID-19. And I think that's a great I think that's a great way to highlight the power of purpose, because if you have an organization that has a real purpose that everybody is aligned against, I should say aligned for, um, when something like COVID-19 hits and your organization has that purpose clearly defined, they're able to really kind of everybody put their shoulder into it, embrace it. And, and that's kind of when you really make your your mark on the world, right? So many organizations where just so connected through purpose and the Unilever example that you mentioned, you know, Unilever was created in the, the, the late 1800s on Lifebuoy Soap and Lifebuoy Soap was there to, um, to counter cholera and typhoid in the inner city slums of England. So in a way that company had gone full surf, surf, circuit and, uh, you know, purpose you could see that in the search for the vaccine. You can see that in our health workers. You can see that in response of so many companies, whether they were in engineering and they, they turned their hand to making ventilators. Um, the, the whiskey companies in Scotland who stopped making their whiskey and made sanitizer uh, instead. And, and, you know, thousands of examples of this in the corporate world where the purpose was to help the world and to help communities through the pandemic. And you saw the power of that. How do we um, harness the power of that now as we come out and we face the challenges of the future like climate change? What is the relationship between your company's purpose um, and the, the greater good of community and society? Yeah, no, and you, <laughs> you know it's serious business when, when uh, whiskey companies stop making whiskey. Uh, so yeah. Uh, but but that was it, right? I mean, we, we got everybody moving in the, in the same direction, so to speak, for the most part. You know, we had some people who uh, were were pushing uh, pushing back, if you will. But I think that is the one thing. You know, again, let's go back to nine eleven, right? Nine eleven, for the most part, was very much uniquely an American issue. Yeah, the world mourned with us, the world felt it with us, but for the most part, that was a, an American issue. This is something that's touched everybody. And we talk a lot about division, and it, it exists, but I, I, this is like one of the most connected time periods in my life that I think the world has ever had. Would you agree, disagree? Well, I think, you know, my, one of my themes here is uh, global cooperation. Um, and I think what, what you saw, what was disappointing was that many politicians, wherever you were in the world, were seen to be turning inwards and to be sowing division um, and to be acting for their short-term political advantage. And that's whether you were in Asia, Europe, UK or the US. And actually it was the, it was the people, the communities uh, and many of the big corporations who were genuinely cooperating across global boundaries to try and solve uh, many of the issues of this crisis. And I, you know, I've seen recently um, a couple of the companies I've been working with who have a big workforce in India and the way that they've been helping um, their colleagues in, in India. And, it, and it's, um, it's quite humbling what they've, what they've been doing. And uh, I think that you know, one of the people we spoke to was the, the chief executive of TradeShift, which is a digital procurement business uh, based out of San Francisco. And they're experts in procurement. And the message um, from them is pretty clear. The world had enough PPE to go around if we'd only put it to the places of need at the right time. The thing that caused a shortage of PPE was governments right around the world having a wrestling match over getting um, their share of it. And if we tag global cooperation on that PPE issue, um, I think you would have seen um, fewer shortages, if any, of, of PPE. And I think probably there's the same thing been going on, although it seems to be maybe getting better now around about um, procurement and distribution of the vaccine. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great point to make there, right? So not even just with PPE, but uh, I'm not sure if uh, you all heard over there, but few months back, we had a uh, one of the major pipelines on the East Coast uh, 
had a cyber attack, right? And it was the same thing that you're talking about here. Uh, you know, I've got friends uh, and family back home in Northeast Tennessee that were affected by it. But it was the same thing. People were making runs on on gas stations. There was no gas shortage. There never was, except for the one that was created by people panicking. And and you, <laughs> there were pictures going around uh, in my hometown, small town, Northeast Tennessee, little place called Irwin. You know, of, of people showing up with, you know, two, three, uh, 500 gallon farm tanks, filling these things up and then wondering where all the gas went. Yeah, no, exactly. And and we saw all that craziness at the start of the pandemic uh, in our in our stores, didn't we? Um, with runs on the toilet paper and, uh, uh, you know, flour. Uh, I don't know if that was the same same with with you, but um, there was a huge run on flour here at one stage. I don't know if everyone was going to be making their own bread or, or or whatever it was. So, yeah, the it's very interesting the human behaviour, isn't it? And we go back to our our, our basic uh, instincts when something that we don't understand like this happens, and we start to think about where do we get our food, our water, and our and our shelter from. But uh, yeah, we could have seen some better leadership around about that. But fortunately, I think these things are maybe um, they're short-term instinctive reactions from humankind. Um, but there, there's so much other stuff which outweighs, you know, the kindness, the compassion, the community spirit. People wherever they were in the world doing more for their neighbours, helping the elderly. Uh, you know, humbling. I mean, you only have to look at the health and care workers wherever you were in the world and the, the danger that they place themselves in um, to help others. And you see the, the finest um, aspects of the human condition from, from all these people. It's quite humbling. We were only trying to save companies in most of our work. We weren't trying to save lives. Yeah, no. Uh, and you're right. You know, the, the health care workers, the the truck drivers, the folks who kept this supply chain moving as much as they possibly could. But how do we, you know, and, and I know some of the, the organizations were trying to answer this for their organizations, but, you know, how do we keep that kind of momentum going? Like, like with the supply chain, like, is there a, is there a way that we can better communicate these issues to folks? So that panic doesn't set in and it comes, becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I think you've already seen huge changes in the supply chain as a result of the pandemic. You know, fr frankly, where we were with the supply chain is that we've made 40 years of decisions on supply around about cost and productivity. And, you know, that's why so much manufacturing from the US and uh, Europe has moved out to cheaper labor markets in, in Asia and the Far East. And I think what you saw when the pandemic hit is that people realise that those decisions on cost and productivity uh, were not decisions that stood them any good when a pandemic closed the world's borders and froze uh, the world's transport. So I think you will see um, people entirely reconsidering. Someone told me the other day that um, to make an iPhone, um, you needed um, companies to cooperate from 60 countries around the world. I don't, I don't know how how true that is, or if that's a, that's a myth, but I get the idea. Um, the, the supply chains have become hugely complicated um, as we try to eke out every last cent and uh, dollar from the cost of manufacturing things. Well, on the back of a pandemic, countries are going to have to consider what do they need to manufacture close to home for the security um, of their people, and for their security, their people in a crisis. And I think you will see um, a simplification of supply chain. You've probably seen it already. And you, you may well see a lot of uh, manufacturing move back from Asia to the US and Europe. Uh, if it does though, I suspect the manufacturing will be carried out uh, more by robots than by humans. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I was reading an article uh, just couple days ago, they were talking about this very issue, and, and the example that they used uh, was the the power grid. 
and and they were talking about the transformers, especially at like big power stations, the custom built transformers. Said there were two places in the world that could build those transformers. One of them was in China, and one of them was in Germany, if I remember right. And they went from being able to have like say maybe a week and a half or a two week turnaround uh, pre pandemic to now. If one of those transformers blows, you're looking at six months to a year lead time to replace that transformer, which in a lot of instances, and you're looking at something like a power grid, means a large swath of a country could be out of power for up to six months. And that's just crazy to think about, like you said, that that the supply chain, some of these things that are so critical have gotten so... I'm not even sure what word I'm looking for here, but so, so sparse and who can make them and provide them, right? Yeah, and uh, you know there'll be huge change around about that, and I think there'll be opportunity for local economies around about that. You've also seen a bit of a theme of uh, buy local, haven't you? Around about um, all our our food and fruit and and all these things. Yeah. You know why why are we getting berries from Morocco? Not that I've got anything against the people of Morocco, but it's also not a particularly sustainable um, way of doing things to be transporting berries um, halfway around halfway around the world. So I think you will see um, a greater focus on, on buying local and making things locally. And and then a focus on what what is the stuff? You know, you, your generation of electricity, well, it's an absolute um, essential. It's a security essential for nations, isn't it? So um, you can't be um, shutting down the, your communities because you don't have power, because you can't get the parts because there's a pandemic. So I, I think there'll be a you know, huge change in mindset around about that, and I think there probably has already. You know, one of the things that, that, that we're doing, Errol, is on the back of the book Leaders in Lockdown, we've been doing workshops with leadership teams about how they come out of this pandemic better. And it's been absolutely fascinating because many people have not stopped to reflect and one of the things that we ask them is what do you want to hold on to from the pandemic and what do you want to give up um, and then we work with them to try and embed that into the behaviors and the habits in their companies and you know at the peak of the crisis there was some very positive stuff that was happening in, in businesses and especially in large corporations there was an agility and pace that we rarely had seen before. And people want to hold on to that, but they want to hold on to it in a way that doesn't burn everyone out. There was a focus on the most important things, and especially on giving up non-productive work and bureaucracy. We focused on the stuff that we really need to do to keep our businesses alive. I think a lot of people thought that the working together was better. The silos came down at the peak of the crisis. There was more care and compassion and empathy and actually people trusted each other more at the peak of the crisis when they were working together in this common cause. So a great question for your listeners is if, if these themes resonate with you, how are you going to hold on to them and then what's the stuff that you're going to give up? I think that is a beautiful question to ask because we're, we, <laughs> we, we always or focus on the question of how do we get more? How do we have more? But very few people do stop to ask that question is what can and what will you give up if necessary? And that's, that's the, that's the crucial question for me now, because we're at this crossroads now where we're talking about return to office and how do we reinvent that? And this is the point. It's a really, maybe in our generation, the most important few months for leaders. How are you going to grab onto that? You know, we talked at the start about not going back to the way we were before. How are you going to hang on to that agility and pace, that care, that compassion, that focus, and that trust that actually worked really well in businesses under great pressure at the peak of this pandemic? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I I, I like that, and and that kind of ties into one of the other themes in the book, the the resiliency piece, right? Because I think all of these things we've been talking about here up to this point, they, they all have a resiliency uh, element to them, right? If your supply chain isn't in good shape, if you're not having global uh, cooperation, resiliency suffers and makes us very susceptible to 
much, much worse levels of, say, a pandemic, right? It does, and resilience in, in every level, because so many companies have been forced by uh, the markets, the investors, to cut things to the bone. And, of course, the moment the crisis hit, it was the companies who had good, strong balance sheets, who had cash, that were going to see this through in a more comfortable way than those um, who were sailing, as, uh, as Warren Buffett um, said, the people who were, I think, swimming with their trunks off when the tide went out. <laughs> I, I like that. I hadn't heard that, but that is... Uh... That's a good way to put it, right? Because basically what he's talking about is is, is being uh, ill-prepared for what's coming up. Yeah. Being, <laughs> being exposed in the financial sense and, you know, um, you know, a number of the, the, the leaders that we worked with during this period, uh, it was the ones who had healthy, substantial balance sheets who were the ones who were sleeping the most easily when this happened. And, you know, interesting, I mentioned the chief executive of Peninsula Hotels, you know, that still, I think, has a majority family shareholder who's been with the company for 150 years. And his attitude was, don't call yourself a long-term investor if you get scared off by a pandemic. Oh, I, I love that. That reminds me. So um, there's a little town in, in southern Michigan called Eau Claire, and it's home to this, uh, this place called Tremendous Fruit Farms. Some people may have heard of it because it used to make, uh, there was a thing called News of the Weird, and they, they hosted the International Cherry Pit Spit Competition every year. So uh, you may be thinking, okay, where the heck is Earl going with this? The guy who owned the place uh, was named Herb Teichman, and there was this issue that happened uh, in southern Michigan, I want to say it was the late 90s, early 2000s, where... Uh, just this frost set in. It was a, it was a, a late frost, and it killed off a bunch of peach trees, killed off a bunch of cherry trees, and there were a lot of farmers that were kind of suffering from it. Well, they they were putting in for their their government relief, but Herb refused. He would not fill out for his government relief form, and there was something in the law at the time, if I remember right, that because he wouldn't file. It was, it, it was holding up files for other, uh, other orchard owners. And when he was interviewed, and, and they actually sent somebody from University of Michigan uh, to, to interview him. And I love this quote by him. He says, they asked him why he wouldn't file. And he said, look, he goes, if I go to the horse track and I bet on a horse and it loses, I don't file for government assistance. That's the same business we're in right now. We're betting every year whether or not our crops are going to succeed or fail. And and, and I, I when you were telling that, it just brought that story back to me because it's kind of what they're talking about here, right? Is don't call yourself a long-term investment if you're not in it for the long term. Yeah. So, yeah. I and, like that. you know, pandemics, wars, you know, they they happen. Let's look back in history. Um, they, they come along with uh, regularity. And one of the other leaders that, that um, we interviewed for the book was General Stan McChrystal, um, who did lead the um, Allied forces in Afghanistan and uh, in Iraq. And, you know, his, his big thing was, are we prepared for the next crisis? And why weren't we prepared enough for this one? And, and you know, he was very challenging about people who said, and nobody could have seen this coming. He was like, yeah, we could have seen this coming. There was always going to be a pandemic sometime and it was going to have a terrible financial and uh, health fallout. So don't tell me you weren't prepared. So how are you preparing for the next crisis? Yeah, definitely. And I can I, I can hear General McChrystal saying that. I, I had General Huggins, one of his kind of top tier uh, folks at the McChrystal Group on the, on the podcast uh, several episodes back, but, you know, that sounds exactly like something I can hear uh, General McChrystal say, because it's true. You know, it's, it's, we, we don't, and, and I don't know if this is a uniquely American thing, but it sounds like it's not based on what we learned here or what we've heard through the pandemic. You know, but there's this phenomenon where we, we really forget tragedy pretty quick. We, we think we don't, but we have a short memory span when it comes to tragedy, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. 
and uh, you know even financial tragedy. So you I mean we talked about nine eleven, but after the global financial crisis, you know people said that would be the end of capitalism as it was, and globalization um, would come to an end. But you know uh, it didn't. It only lasted till our next few paychecks, and uh, then we were off again, weren't we? Oh yeah. Well, I'll give another example here. Uh, Hurricane Katrina when it hit New Orleans in, I think it was 2005, you know, leading up to it, a lot of people were like, it's never going to hit us. It's never going to hit us. It's never going to hit us. And oh God, it hit us. And now all this terrible happened. Well, I think it was three years later, they had another hurricane taking a very similar track. Wasn't quite as strong, but everybody in New Orleans would say the same thing. Oh, it'll never hit us. It'll never hit us. It'll never hit us. It's like, don't you remember what just happened like three years ago that you still haven't recovered from yet? So. How do we get organizations to really start thinking about that next thing? Because as you pointed out, just because we've kind of gotten into a routine with COVID and now we're starting to kind of plan and coming out of it, like you said, we really need to think about what are our operations going to look like when the next thing hits. Yeah, well, we come back to the burden of command, don't we? Yeah. Leadership. So, you know, it's a duty of leadership uh, to implement changes based on what we've learned through this pandemic. Um, what I think, certainly in the financial world, that often gets quoted to me, is that um, as each financial crisis passes, um, one generation of people who've experienced it um, retire, um, go off to um, perhaps a financially lucrative uh, retirement and another bunch of people come along and make the same mistakes as were made before and uh, you know we really need to avoid that we really need to avoid that so so the burden of command for me is now it's in this next period as we return to office to not go back to where we were before to look at the seven themes in in this book that we have and to listen to their people to work with their people and what do they want to hold on to and then to do the difficult bit which is what after you've pinpointed what you want to hold on to is how you get that into the daily behaviors of your leadership the habits of your people the culture of your organization the way we do things around here and that's when you make uh, real change Oh, I agree. And I love that. And that's one of the reasons why when I'm doing my uh, leadership development and I'm working with people, whether it's a coach, mentor, whether I'm doing a seminar, I really do like to infuse as much history as possible because, you know, my feelings is if you if you know your history, you're prepared for the future because there's very few things that we're going through right now that history hasn't already dealt with. I mean, we had a plague that that was a pandemic. We had, uh, you know, various types of flu. If we know how we handled those, we know what we went through. We don't need to relearn all these same lessons over and over again, right? No. And, and what was it of human behavior that when this, when we saw this pandemic hit China, spread across Asia, move towards Europe, that we thought it wasn't going to hit us in the UK and the US? Yeah. Because as I record in the book, there are politicians in the UK and politicians in the US who were in denial about this when it was not only staring us in, in, in the face, but when it was starting to already spread through our countries. Um, and they didn't want to believe it, did they? So they just denied it. Right. So we couldn't deny it anymore. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, that's a great point. And, you know, sadly... I was one of those people. I remember, <laughs> I remember going down to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, to give a presentation at a diversity and inclusion conference, and uh, my wife was worried about it. And I'm like, ah, it's it's a long ways away. It's not going to get here. And, and if it does, it's not going to get here anytime soon. Sure enough, Memphis had the first recorded case while I was at the diversity and inclusion conference. <laughs> so you know, I, my uh, our daughter. Um, when she was asked to leave the office, um, she asked if she should take her charger for her cell phone because she didn't think she'd be away for more than 24 or 40 hours. 
and 16 months later, she's not been back. So uh, you, I think we've covered just about everything in the book except for the two themes of, of maximizing potential and tackling inequality. And I think those two are probably pretty closely linked, right? They are, they are. And, and, and in our world, Earl, the maximizing potential one um, is huge, isn't it? Because um, there's obviously what kind of leadership was most effective in this uh, crisis. And as we mentioned, Lena Nair from Unilever, is, as she said, she feels it's the end of the era of the superman leader. And she does mean the superman leader. Uh, and this was an era where we saw the more empowering empathetic, listening, authentic leadership, compassionate and caring, that that was most effective. And in maximizing potential, this was a moment where we all realized um, about physical health, about mental welfare, uh, and that went hugely up the agenda and will not retreat back to where it was. And we had to consider, well, how do we lead these? Um, we did this amazing thing of moving these millions of people from office to home, but how do we lead? How do we maximize the potential of that remote workforce? And really in the next period, when we're going to have this hybrid workforce in many sectors and many companies, how do we maximize the potential of uh, people who are in three days, away two days, or um, where some of the teams in the office and some of the teams working from home? So there's huge questions for, for leadership around maximizing potential, which need very careful consideration. But I believe it's changed the way um, that people will need to lead in the future. And um, again, the leaders in lockdown, they would emphasize that there were no new trends. No new trends um, came out of this crisis. There were just trends that were already there that accelerated massively. And I think that trend of moving away from the command and control leader to the servant leader um, was strong before the crisis, but has accelerated hugely because of what we've been through, because we've seen what is the most effective way to lead. Yeah, no, 100%. And and on that point, you know, I think one of the greatest things that uh, this pandemic has done is, as you said, accelerating these trends. We've, we've become more adept, uh, more adept at uh, working from home, working remotely, working via Zoom, having these conferences. And I see it being easier for companies to be able to reach out and, and get into some of these areas and, and pull talent where maybe they haven't been able to before. You know, like most companies, let's talk about Scotland, for instance, right? Most companies in the, in the States probably would never really think about reaching out to universities in Scotland to, you know, recruit because, well, they're in Scotland. Well, now, being in Scotland is the same thing as being down the road. So what's the difference, right? Well, you know, we've made, uh, the way I put it is that we've made geography history. Yeah, I like that. Um, but there, there is a limit on it because five, five hour time difference between the UK and, uh, you know, East Coast, US, um, that's, that's workable. That's perfectly workable. Um, but it does get a little bit more difficult uh, when the time difference is more than five hours, I think, um, because you need to have a, a reasonably substantial overlap uh, in the virtual world. I mean, I work with um, someone in Dubai who does a lot of uh, work on the West Coast of the US, and he's just he's up all night. So that doesn't really work for him and is not um, sustainable for him, in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and those are those those things that we still have to kind of uh, kind of work on there, and, and those little finer details. And you know, again, talking about tackling inequalities, taking into account those you know regional and cultural differences and the variations in holidays. I mean, there's there's a lot to it, but it's a lot. I guess my point is, it's a lot more possible and a lot more doable now than it was. Absolutely, and you know, the, on the inequality point, the the virus has widened inequality in so many ways from the people who were infected by it, um, the people who died from it. It was unequal in terms of uh, social um, and poverty, um, poor, you know, impacting more on poorer people, these very different experiences that the middle class um, had um, from the less well-off. Uh, the way that the, the vaccine has rolled out 
Widens inequality, the economic debt, uh, the people who were made unemployed during this, the people who will struggle to get jobs back. So, you know, the, the, this has really taken us back many, many years in terms of widening inequality, and that's something that we all need to face into. I, I agree completely. Well, Ethel, we've been talking here for about 40, 45 minutes here or so. Uh, again, for the, the listeners, we've been talking primarily about leaders in lockdown, inside stories of COVID-19, and the new world of business. Um, again, I, I'm going to give you two questions here. One, with all of the stuff that we've talked about, and I know we've kind of uh, brushed up against this a little bit already, with all the stuff we've talked about, what do you see the future looking like over the next, let's just say, two to five years? And is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on yet that you'd like to leave listeners with? Well, I think the future is full of uncertainty and full of opportunity. Um, and it lands on leaders, whether we're going to exploit and, uh, and mine that opportunity um, or we're going to continue the uncertainty. And I think we are at a crossroads here where we can um, change uh, so many of our businesses for the better, where we can redefine what the world of work is and where we can reset society. And, and my message is pretty simple to every leader at every level who's listening to this podcast or who, who might read the book. And uh, we've got to seize this moment and reset the way we do things. You know, 182 million people have been infected by COVID by today. 182 million people. And as I said earlier, 4 million people have died. And I think we owe it to them uh, to create the new world of work. And the only people that can do it are the leaders who are listening out there. There's no one else. And, uh, you know, Alison Martin, who's the European CEO of Zurich Insurance Group, um, the way that she put it to me was, um, what is the world we want our children to live and work in? And can we try and create that one rather than the one that we were destroying before COVID. And I think that's a pretty good note to sum it up on, Errol. I love it. I love it. Well, sir, thank you very much for spending uh, the time with us today. Um, I really hope that we've won over some hearts and minds and they're going to be looking for a copy of the book. But they want to find out more about you, uh, what you do and, and uh, the work that you have uh, that you've done. Where can they find out more? Well, the book Leaders in Lockdown um, is available um, probably most easily on Amazon. Um, myself, you can find out more about me on my own website, which is atholduncan.com. And that's A-T-H-O-L-L-D-U-N-C-A-N, atholduncan.com. And you can find out really um, also about the workshops that we've been doing. You can contact me about them. Um, they're, they're really hit a moment, these workshops, and uh, they're very powerful moments for people to reflect, reset, and reimagine for the post-pandemic world. Um, and we're delighted to do them for any, anyone that's um, out there for their teams. Uh, we think it's a, a very important uh, thing to do for you to reflect with your teams and reset for leading out of lockdown. Um, you can also find out a bit about the company that uh, I work with, uh, Black Isle Group, on blackislegroup.com. Outstanding, and I'll get all those. Uh, I'll get all those links in the show notes so folks can just click on it and, and get right there. And I like what you said there about the the reflect and reset piece because I think I think that's the silver lining of COVID is. There, there's very few times that you really get the opportunity to kind of press the reset button on on your organization, on the culture, on how your work operates. And and Athol's book has a lot of great guides of how uh, and stories of how various industries have have done just that. So don't waste this opportunity and don't waste the the chance to find this resource and put it to use as you figure out how your organization is going to come back to work because Athol and the, and the people he's reached out to have given you a lot of great information. You don't have to reinvent that wheel. So 
again, thank you for being with us and thank you for writing the book and doing what you do, sir. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, when I'm allowed, I can't get, wait to get back to the US and meet my friends and my colleagues and get working with them face to face again. Uh, Zoom's a great thing, but face you, you can't share nice American wine face to face. Or 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 nice on Zoom. On Zoom, yeah, no, I, I got you. Or or the, the the nice a nice glass of scotch, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's a two way process. Nice Californian wine, nice Scotch whiskey. It's a match yeah. made in heaven. You can sign me up for a bottle of Laphroaig any day. Uh, all right, well, sir, again, thank you for your time, and listeners, thank you for uh, spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, make sure you visit those links. Make sure you grab a copy of the book. Uh, and make sure you're out there rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this show with uh, folks that you know that can benefit from this. So uh, my great guests like Athol can get their messages spread further, wider, and reach more people. That's that's how you can help us make a difference here. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you can reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. With that, really appreciate every one of you, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. If you're a working professional wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on Career Advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Electric Cast.